Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Eric Dobmeyer, President and CEO of Chinook Therapeutics. Thanks so much for joining us today, Eric. Thanks, Rahul. It's great to be here. Wonderful. So Eric, to kick us off, would love to understand how you got interested in biotech, the arc of your career, and how you got to where you are today. Happy to tell you about that. So I am a lawyer originally. So I started my career in law working with technology companies. And I'm now a recovering lawyer, mostly recovered, but not fully. I was working with technology companies at a firm called Venture Law Group. And I had a variety of different industries that I was working with, but biotech was one of them. And there was a company called Seattle Genetics that I was representing. We helped them license technology from Bristol Myers, do some private financings, and then go public. And then about a year after the company was public, I went in-house as general counsel. So this was in 2002, when the company was about 50 employees and about 150 million market cap. Little did I know I would stay there for 16 years and have about five or six different titles. I was the chief operating officer for the last six years that I was at Seattle Genetics. And we grew the company to about 1,200 employees and I think close to a 10 billion market cap while I was there. It's now obviously even over $30 billion now, and it's called CGen instead of Seattle Genetics. So I left CGen in 2017 and my second job. So after a 16 year stint, I had a six month stint as CEO of a company called Silverback Therapeutics. So this was a startup funded by Orbimed. It was focused on a different type of ADC than CGen was doing. It was an immunomodulatory ADC. And I was brought on to raise a Series B and do some partnering and ultimately go public. This is when the IPO market was really hot for biotech. But unfortunately, we had a setback in our lead program where it looked great in mice, but in our tox species, it did not look very good. And we actually had to do a layoff. I laid myself off as part of this transition at Silverback. And it was kind of like two bookends. I saw, you know, a really successful biotech it was a good lesson for me on how hard biotech is and a humbling experience. And then after Silverback, I moved on to Chinook, which is the company that I'm at right now. A little bit of a departure because instead of oncology, where I'd spent most of my career, it's in kidney disease. And it's a really interesting history of how we've grown that company from a series A 15-person company back when I joined in 2019 to a 220-person company. We're almost a 2 billion market cap with three clinical stage programs. So over a four-year period, mostly during a pandemic, we've really transformed the company. Wonderful. Thanks, Eric. And I'm sure we'll get into that rapid growth that you've been experiencing later. I'd love to talk a little bit about your experience at Seattle Genetics or CGen as well, and how that informed how you operate now. So two questions. The first one being, Given your experience at CGen, what lessons did you take away from that experience that you feel you've continued to apply at Chinook now? I would say I learned so much. I learned how to do biotech at CGen. Before I went in-house, I knew how to do deals. I knew how to do financings and licensing deals, but I didn't really know the business of biotech. And I started out as general counsel and purely doing law. But as the company grew, I was one of the few people who didn't wear a lab coat. So when we needed someone to 
run business development, IR and communications or program management, manufacturing, ultimately corporate strategy. I kind of took things on as the company grew and learned how to do them on the job. And I would say one of the lessons I learned from that is don't be afraid to try new things. Take opportunities when they present themselves. You can learn this. I'm not a scientist by training, but I've learned enough to be effective in the roles that I'm in. I'm never going to understand science the same way a PhD scientist does. But I think being willing to take chances and put yourself out there and learn is the way that I've built my career. The other thing I learned from CGen, when you look at CGen now, you think, oh, it's such a highly successful company. It was kind of like a blessed experience. But we had six drugs fail before we had our first drug succeed. We were Our market cap was bull. Our stock price was probably about $1.50 at one point. Nobody wanted to work with ADCs for a long time. And persistence. We raised a lot of money. We kept plugging away. We kept putting drugs into the clinic. That was a real lesson for me is how hard biotech is, even in a successful company, how hard you need to work to really keep plugging away at it. Because you can do everything right and still fail in biotech because the science just doesn't always pan out. Great point, Eric. The second part of this question now, going back to your time at Seattle Genetics, what were approaches that perhaps worked for you or the company when you left CGen that you had to rethink in your mind, given where Chinook was when you first started there? Yeah, when I started at Chinook, it was just 15 researchers in the labs in Vancouver. I live in Seattle and I was traveling up to Vancouver every week. We had a lead program that was a several years from being a drug candidate. And then we had a number of even earlier stage programs. So the kind of resourcing that we had at the end of the CGen experience, the kind of capital that we had was just miles different at Chinook. And, you know, there's a different approach when you're a private VC-backed company in terms of how you look at resource allocation, how you think about programs. And then when you're a public company and you've got multiple programs going on and you've got sort of all of the functional areas you need to advance your program. So it's a completely different environment. When you're an early stage company without data, you've really got to sell the dream a lot more. Whereas, you know, at CGen, it was about the data. We had clinical data we could talk about. We could compare it to the standard of care. We could really look at how our program stacked up. At Chinook, in the beginning, it was about selling a dream of changing the way kidney disease is treated. And in terms of selling that dream, has your approach to that changed when you were 15 employees to when you grew to 50? And if so, would love to understand what the evolution of how you position an early stage biotech took place over that time. Well, it's an interesting story at Chinook. It's definitely not a standard way of building a biotech company. So we started with a research team in Vancouver. These were actually folks that have been working within Versant Ventures in a group called Inception Sciences. So they were doing company formation. They would develop products and out-license them to pharma all within Versant. And then in 2018, Versant made the decision, let's take these folks in the Vancouver group and put them in a company and figure out where to focus. So they spent some time before I got there choosing kidney disease as a therapeutic area. And then what happened is we had a lead program at the time for kidney stone disease. It's still in our pipeline. It's our third program right now in a healthy volunteer phase one. So that was the initial goal, develop that program, develop programs behind it, grow the company as an organic research company. But what we ended up doing is we got interested in a program that had been developed and then paused at AbbVie for strategic reasons called Atrocentin. 
It had been developed in thousands of patients with diabetic kidney disease, and we wanted to develop it in rare kidney disease. So we were able to convince AbbVie to license that drug to us in late 2019. And then we needed to build a development team from scratch because all we had were researchers. So we needed to hire manufacturing, clinical development, biometrics, all the functions that you need to start a phase three trial. So we went out to raise money. We were going to do a series B. This was in early 2020, right before the pandemic. So we started pitching VCs and then suddenly the world shut down. That was time when biotech was still really hot. We continued to have really interesting conversations with VCs, but it was hard for a lot of them to get their head around grafting a phase three asset onto a research company. So it was kind of like two barbells on either end without much in the middle. And at that point, we came across this opportunity with a company called Aduro in Berkeley. It was an immuno-oncology company that had come on hard times, but they had $250 million in cash. They had a public listing on NASDAQ, and they actually had a kidney disease drug that they had developed originally in multiple myeloma. It hadn't worked there, but it had been really effective at targeting April, which is a B-cell target. And they took it into a healthy volunteer trial and targeted towards a disease called IgA nephropathy. So we thought, is this crazy? Should we do this? Reverse mergers are hard, and we can talk about that. But we ended up doing a reverse merger with Aduro. We closed it in October of 2020, became a public company. And from there, we've built the company up to 220 people, three clinical stage programs. We have a phase three readout for the drug we in license from AbbVie coming up later this year. And we're starting a phase three trial for the drug that we brought in through the Aduro merger. What I would say about this experience at Chinook is, We've been very opportunistic, but disciplined about our strategy of focusing on rare, severe kidney disease. So when you look back on it, it seems like some of these deals were pretty bold and a little crazy, but they were all really focused on, we want to be the leading company in kidney disease. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of competition for that. There just aren't that many companies focused in this therapeutic area. Great. So Eric, we haven't had a lot of folks on the podcast that have been focusing on kidney disease. So would love if you could educate us on the landscape of kidney disease, the current unmet need, and what opportunities you saw and continue to see in that space. I would be happy to. That's something that we spend a lot of time talking to folks about because there is not as much awareness as there should be. So when you think about kidney disease, about 10% of the global population as kidney disease, amazingly. So that's 800 million people worldwide, including about 37 million in the US. A lot of these folks don't even know they have kidney disease. It can often be sort of a silent progressing disease. And this is obviously bad for patients. It's also very expensive for our healthcare system. We're spending over $130 billion a year in the US alone on kidney disease, but most of it is on dialysis and transplant and supportive care. There's very little spent on therapeutics. There are very few drugs that are used to slow down or stop the progression of kidney disease. Mostly what are used in a lot of these diseases are blood pressure lowering medications, which are called ACEs or ARBs. They reduce the pressure in the kidney and provide some benefits. And then also steroids are used quite often, but very difficult to tolerate for a lot of patients. And then other things like fish oil, chemotherapy drugs, all of these drugs are unapproved and really don't work very well. And I think what's really underappreciated is people think, well, there's always this backstop in kidney disease. You can always get dialysis or transplant. But what's not appreciated is how bad those outcomes are for patients and how expensive they are. So if you're on dialysis, you're going into either the dialysis clinic or your doctor over 150 times a year 
for either dialysis or checkups or blood tests or other things. It costs $200,000 annually to be on dialysis, and your median life expectancy on dialysis is less than five years. So in terms of survival, if, if you're not able to get a transplant, your survival is less than someone with metastatic solid tumors. It's really a bad place to be. And then when you talk about transplant, there's about 23,000 transplants a year in the U.S. It's difficult to find a kidney unless you have a live donor who's willing to donate a kidney. There aren't a lot available unless you can line someone up who's willing to do it. It costs $400,000 to do a kidney transplant. And then you're on immunosuppressants for your lifetime. So you're more likely to get cancer. You're more likely to have infectious disease. And kidney transplants only last a couple decades. So if you're young and you're getting a kidney transplant, you may need to get two or three kidneys in your lifetime. We have patients we're treating in our trials who have four kidneys, because when you get a transplant, they don't take out the old kidneys. They just keep adding new ones in there. So it's really a bad situation that's underappreciated. And we think that if we can develop drugs that are going to slow down or stop progression and make kidney disease into truly chronic disease, we're going to have a huge impact on both patients' quality of life, as well as the healthcare system. Great. Thanks for that background, Eric. I'm curious from your vantage point, why do you think that more companies aren't working on kidney disease or adjacent indications? It's a great question. And it's one that I was asking when I first came to Chinook because I had spent most of my career in oncology. And I think it's multifactorial. When you ask someone, you're going to get a whole bunch of different answers. I think that there hasn't been as much research done and as much funding for kidney diseases there has been in other areas like oncology, for example. Kidney disease is often considered to be a symptom of something else. So like a lot of people with kidney disease have diabetes. That's a big cause of dialysis and kidney failure. So often diabetes is the disease that's treated and the kidney disease is seen as, as secondary to that. And also, as I mentioned earlier, it's not viewed as dire as cancer. When you think about it, people say, oh, well, if your kidneys fail, there are other things you can do. It's not like diseases where you're actually going to be dying if your disease isn't treated. There also hasn't been enough research done, like basic research. When you look at the way kidney disease is diagnosed and treated, it's kind of like looking at breast cancer 30 years ago. When you were diagnosed with breast cancer, you got chemotherapy, you relapsed, you got in different chemo. Now we know breast cancer is not one disease. It's HER2 positive, it's triple negative, it's ER positive. And with many cancers, that's the case now. Whereas with kidney disease, we're just looking at a slide and going, you have FSGS or you have IgA nephropathy. What we're doing now is learning more about what are the causes of kidney disease? Why does your kidney look that way in a slide? How can we actually treat what's causing the damage rather than just the symptoms or sort of the damage that's already being caused? The last thing I would say, and probably most importantly, the FDA has only recently started to recognize surrogate endpoints in clinical trials for kidney disease. So it used to be when you did a clinical trial in kidney you needed to look at hard kidney outcomes. And those are things like progression to end-stage renal disease or doubling of serine creatinine. And they often take trials with thousands of patients and many years to do. And you can do that kind of trial in diabetic kidney disease because a lot of patients have that. But in a lot of the rare severe kidney diseases that are more slowly progressing, it's just not possible to do a hard kidney outcome trial. And now the FDA is starting to recognize surrogates like proteinuria or the level of protein in urine. We're doing a phase three trial where we're looking at proteinuria at six to nine months as an endpoint for accelerated approval. And we can look at EGFR at sort of two to three years 
as a full approval endpoint. So that's really transformed a lot of these diseases and where you can actually feasibly do a trial where you couldn't before. And do you anticipate other companies exploring kidney disease with some of the platform technology that's being built based on some of the progress that you and others have made in terms of acceptance of surrogate endpoints for pivotal trials? Absolutely. We're seeing a really a growing interest in kidney disease amongst big pharma in particular, whereas they used to really only focus on diabetic kidney disease. They're now moving into other areas, polycystic kidney disease, for example, and then a number of different glomerular diseases. We're also seeing interest from biotechs in starting to go into this area. And I think some of it's driven by the fact that oncology and other areas have become so crowded when I was working at CGen and Silverback, we were starting to do trials in third, fourth, fifth line patients combined with a PD-1 inhibitor. It just became much more difficult to make a big difference in cancer. Whereas most of the diseases we're working on in kidney disease have no approved therapies, none. It's shocking. Yeah. And I'm curious, Eric, now given your exposure to the kidney disease space and coming from a background in oncology, are there other therapeutic areas where you think that there's a bunch of opportunity, but are not being pursued in a manner that correlates with the unmet need in a particular patient population? I think there is a growing interest in chronic disease. There's been a real focus in cancer and in other areas where you're really trying to save someone's life in a short period of time often. But I do think that we don't have enough treatments. Kidney disease is one example. There are certainly other areas, cardiovascular disease, for example, where we just don't have enough treatments that provide benefit to really large patient populations. There's been a lot of focus on rare disease, which is great. We've made a lot of progress in many rare diseases, but I think to really make a difference in life expectancy and quality of life in broad patient populations is something that we need to do. It's harder because you need to have a much different safety profile often, and you need to do much larger, longer trials. But I think that's where we could really make an impact on patients' health in a big yeah, way. Certainly agree, Eric. We covered now you know, the kidney disease landscape. We talked a little bit about the early days of Chinook. Talk to us about where you are now, and particularly, you know, the progress that you've made over the last two years, uh, and, and what's ahead for Chinook? We have three clinical stage programs currently. So the lead program is called Atrocentin. It's the drug we license from AbbVie. It's an endothelin receptor antagonist. So it's designed to reduce fibrosis and inflammation in the kidney. We're developing it for a disease called IgA nephropathy, which is an autoimmune disease that causes kidney damage. It's usually diagnosed in pretty young people, sort of in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and often develops into kidney failure over a period of several decades. It's something that there are some newer therapies being developed. It's one of the kidney diseases that we are making progress in. But this drug is in a phase three trial currently called Align. It will have a readout in the second half of this year on our top line proteinuria endpoint, which is the endpoint for accelerated approval. So we're excited about that. If we have a good outcome there, we're going to move forward with an NDA and hopefully have a drug to launch by early 2025. So that's our lead program. This is a drug also that we're testing in other diseases like FSGS and Alport syndrome. We think it could have applications in type 1 diabetes as well as post-transplant nephropathies. So its mechanism of action by acting in the kidney to reduce damage could be applicable across a range of chronic kidney diseases. We're also doing a phase two basket trial 
in some of these diseases. I and mean, we've been reporting some of that data and we'll have more data from that during this year. And then our second program is called BIAN1301. That's an anti-April monoclonal antibody. It's also being developed with its lead indication of IgA nephropathy. It's a very different mechanism. So instead of acting in the kidney to reduce damage, it acts very way upstream in the disease. So it acts on April, which is a target that's involved in the production of IgA and this aberrant galactose-deficient IgA by mature plasma cells. So what happens in this disease is your body reacts, usually after an infection, to make these aberrant IgA molecules. And then your body sees those as foreign and you develop autoantibodies that create immune complexes and they circulate and they get deposited in the kidney and cause damage. So with this program, we're actually potentially having a disease modifying effect on reducing the immune complexes. And if they can't form, they can't be deposited in the kidney and cause damage. So we've reported some really striking data from that program in the phase two trial that we're currently in, and we're starting a phase three mid, mid this year. By mid-year, we'll have a phase three nearing readout and another one starting. And then our third program, which is in a healthy volunteer trial, is the Kidney Stone program that I mentioned earlier. It was internally developed at Chinook. It's for both genetic and idiopathic hyperoxaluria. So there are patients who have genetic liver enzyme deficiencies where they get very frequent stones and often kidney failure by the time they're in their late teens or early 20s. And then there's sort of a spectrum of disease that's some of the genetic forms are less severe. And then there's a lot of people that get kidney stones and don't really know why, or they have metabolic conditions like diabetes or obesity that cause frequent stones. So we think we're developing an oral small molecule that we think could have applications across a range of these diseases. And the only approved drug for these diseases is lumiserin, which is from L-nylum. It's an siRNA. It's only approved for the most severe form of this disease, which is called primary hyperoxaluria 1. It's not used in any of the other diseases. Our drug's an oral small molecule. We think that we could titrate it and potentially have benefit across a wide range of patients. And then beyond that, we've got a real focus on rare, severe chronic kidney disease. We've got a number of research programs that we haven't really talked about in terms of targets or diseases for competitive reasons, but in the future, you'll be hearing about those as well. And being now in the kidney disease space for some time, what are some of the complexities of pursuing clinical programs in kidney disease that perhaps folks don't know. I know we talked a little bit about surrogate endpoints, but I'm curious what other learnings you've had along the way, because certainly seems like a complex development path in a space where there's not a lot of folks that have operational execution background. Curious how you've been navigating that as well. Yeah, it's a good point. And the kidney is a very complex organ. I didn't have an appreciation for how many different cell types there are in the kidney until I started working at Chinook. And when you talk to physicians, a lot of them will say, oh boy, nephrology was something that was just too complicated. I didn't focus there because you have to be really intellectual to really get into the space. And it's also been an area where because there haven't been drugs developed, there hasn't been the infrastructure that you have in oncology or rare disease or neurology. So a lot of the sites that we're working with are learning how to do clinical trials alongside of us. There aren't as many people with nephrology backgrounds who have worked in biopharmaceutical companies. So, you know, you'll see a lot of medical directors and CMOs in nephrology companies that have done cardiovascular or other areas because there just hasn't been as many opportunities in nephrology. 
So I'd say the complexity of the organ, the fact that the underlying disease biology hasn't been studied as much as in cancer, as I mentioned earlier, the lack of sort of the infrastructure and the expertise, both internally and externally. So it's a nascent area. I would say I've seen huge progress just in the few years I've been at Chinook, because as there are more companies focused in this area, as there are more drugs being developed, and as there's an appreciation that, look, I don't need to wait till this patient reaches near kidney failure, I can actually intervene earlier with some of these drugs that are really more targeted to the disease pathways. That's really been a game changer for nephrology. And one additional point, you've mentioned a number of different modalities that you're pursuing targeting kidney disease. I imagine that if you're not particularly focused on one modality, you need to build a fairly diverse team or have access to a number of diverse individuals that can help you develop small molecules, monoclonal antibodies, et cetera, et cetera. How have you thought about team building as it relates to being very focused on a particular therapeutic area, but perhaps being more treatment modality agnostic? Yeah, it's a good question. Our team from Inception Scientists is really, a lot of them were trained at Merck and a really very strong small molecule expertise. So that was what we started the company with, was that background. We licensed in the monoclonal antibody. So we've had to build expertise in some of the translational areas, as well as certainly in CMC for that, but we're not doing sort of antibody discovery ourselves. In the future, there's some other modalities we're looking at. And I think what we'll probably do is leverage collaboration. What we're trying to do is identify really promising targets with de-risk biology, and then be a little more agnostic to the technology we use to go after those targets, but leverage companies and people that have a lot of expertise in those areas. Small molecules, I think, will stay our core area of expertise, but we do think that monoclonal antibodies is certainly an area we'd like to go in. There are other modalities, some of the degrader technologies, antisense, other areas we think are really promising for the kidney as well. And from a value creation perspective, particularly being a publicly traded company, any advice that you would provide other leaders as they pursue treatment modality agnostic approaches and what you've learned about being very focused in a particular therapeutic area and the advantage that that gives you versus being very focused on a particular modality? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, it's been a really big time of dislocation in the biotech markets over the last few years. I think it was there was a boom, and there was a lot of money invested in very early stage platforms and technologies and concepts that were still years away from having clinical data. I think that's going to be tougher to do in the future, just because when you look at the, the companies that are doing well right now in the public markets, they're ones that have later stage programs and clinical data to rely on. It's harder to be an early stage company right now. So we've been a bit fortunate in that sense that we were able to bring in some really, really attractive assets that then have panned out even better than we expected them to when we see the, the clinical data. I think there's going to be a lot of companies in the public markets that are going to need to be creative going forward. There's over 200 biotechs trading below their cash value right now. And we're starting to see deals happen. We're starting to see some reverse mergers. We're starting to see companies get creative about how they do partnering. We've seen some companies that have liquidated and returned capital to their shareholders. So I think we're going to need to see more consolidation in this market and really focused on, in my opinion, drugs that are platform technologies are going to be a harder harder thing to invest in in the public markets. I think we're going to need to do more academic collaborations and really find different ways to fund these early stage technologies and programs while 
going back to where it used to be, you needed clinical data and you needed a certain level of validation before you went public. I do think that's the way the markets are headed. And on this topic of current correction that's underway in biotech, curious how, given that you're a publicly traded company that's seen quite a bit of appreciation in terms of your market cap over the years, how are you thinking about how you operate given the current capital markets and perhaps the constraints of the current capital markets as well? Yeah, I've been doing this for over 20 years. I've gone through two biotech winters in that time period. So I always try and stay frugal. And you never know what's going to happen in the markets. We're in a fortunate position where we've got almost 400 million in capital and we're funded into 2025, but I never take that for granted. I think there's a lot of risk in biotech that you can't sort of minimize, but staying well-funded is one you do have an influence on. So we do really try to always have at least two years of capital and stay well-funded through catalysts. And you know, I do think that partnering, which there hasn't been as much partnering over the last few years, I do think needs to play a bigger role here as well. Our focus is to launch our drugs in North America ourselves, but partner certainly in Asia and potentially in other areas like Europe as well. We're still evaluating whether we want to partner in Europe, but I think there are different ways to be creative. This is the way we used to operate is bring in some capital. I don't believe in non-dilutive capital. I think all capital is dilutive in one way or another, but bring in some different types of capital than just pure equity and be more creative about how you're building your company. Just to double click on that point, I'm curious to hear your perspective on why partnerships are important right now. Well, I think that when you look at the industry from a macro point of view, it doesn't make sense for all these little biotechs to be developing their own commercial infrastructures. From a micro point of view, it does, because that's how you build the most value for your investors is to be able to take the programs all the way forward. You give up value when you do partnerships, but you can't do everything yourself, especially in a capital constrained environment. And particularly these days, as it gets more difficult from both a regulatory and a commercial and reimbursement and pricing point of view in some of these geographies, I think in particular, Europe has gotten a much more difficult for a smaller company to do themselves. In our case, we have two drugs for IGA nephropathy that could be launched sort of within about three years of each other. So it's something we're considering. But I do think leveraging resources and expertise, not kind of reinventing the wheel on commercial if there's someone that you can partner with. And then also just there's a lot of partnerships that can be done that can bring together unique technologies like we're doing. Like we don't have expertise in some of these technological areas. We do have expertise in kidney disease and we have really attractive targets. So if we can partner with companies that already know how to have great degrader technology, for example, if we can do a partnership, leverage their expertise and our expertise, one plus one hopefully equals three. Great. Eric, we talked a little bit before recording about the growth that you've seen in mostly a pandemic world and a remote environment in which you've been growing. Talk to us a little bit about what that growth has looked like, what were some lessons learned along the way, and any advice you would provide folks that are thinking about a primarily remote or hybrid environment in terms of driving culture, but also performance. Yeah, I think it's so important to have a really clear mission that everyone buys into and corporate values. We spent time very early on when the company was only about 25 people coming up with our corporate values and spending a lot of time on that. And there actually are still our same corporate values and we really live by them and talk about them a lot. So I think that's particularly important. Sometimes people say, oh, we've got to have a strong culture. I think in a virtual world, especially with we're operating in both the US and Canada and different geographies, 
there are going to be differences in culture. I don't think you want to have your research team is not going to have the same culture as your commercial team. But if you have a shared mission and values, I think you can knit everything together. I'm kind of in between the two extremes. I don't say, oh, being virtual is ideal. There's no problems with it. We're going to keep doing it. And I'm not one of these people who's saying everyone needs to get back in the office either. What we're doing is we're encouraging people to get together with their teams or groups in person. And we're, we're very liberal with reimbursing travel. Um, we do have three offices on the West Coast in Vancouver, Seattle, and in Oakland. And we try and rotate around our executive committee meets in person once a month at one of the different offices. We have our board meetings in different offices. So we're really encouraging people to get together, but we're not requiring anyone to come in the office any particular number of days. We use Zoom, as everyone does, quite a bit. It has its benefits. It's not a perfect tool. It's two-dimensional. and You don't really build relationships in the same way as you do in person. But I think a hybrid model is the wave of the future. It's really hard to get anyone to move for a job these days. And I don't know if that's really ever going to change going forward. And we've been pretty successful at hiring great people. We never would have been able to access if we were focused on being in one of our hub locations. But at the same time, I think as the pandemic wanes, we're going to need to do more to get together in person to sort of relationship build. And I think creativity suffers a bit over Zoom as well. So I'm somewhere in between. And we've gone from 20 to 220, mostly during the pandemic. I think we've done pretty well at getting people to know each other and building a, a strong shared corporate values and mission. But there's more work to be done. And it's always something that's more challenging virtually. And Eric, this is your second time being CEO. This is going to ask you to reflect back a little bit. As you think about the, you know, the first time that you were in the CEO seat, what were some perhaps non-obvious learnings along the way that you quickly had to learn? I'd say additionally, what's the evolution of changes in how you approach the role the first time around versus the second time around? Yeah, it's interesting. I think one of my really strong learnings is that my sweet spot as a CEO is a clinical stage company. Really early stage research, I've done it now in two companies, but it's not my comfort zone. I really like to have data, clinical data to really talk about and hang on to. And because I'm not a scientist by training, it's a little harder to pitch and really create that hope. And some of it's hype too, frankly, in early stage companies, when you don't have data, you've really got to tell a story, sell a dream. And I think that's not my forte. What I'm really like to do is have really concrete data to talk about. I like to build, I like to hire, I like to execute well on programs. And what really motivates me is patience. So once we're in patience and I'm seeing the real benefits that our drugs can provide, that's what really gets me excited. I've been in the commercial phase as well at CGen, and it's great to see your drug get out to patients. But, you know, that's not as exciting to me. Some of all the nuts and bolts of commercial are, are not quite as exciting either. I mean, I definitely can do it. And I think it's going to be exciting at Chinook. But what I really love is when you see a scientific idea go into a clinical trial and help people. That's been one big learning for me. As a CEO, and a lot of CEOs will say this, is that you work hard. I don't know that I'm working harder than I did when I was at CGen in different roles there, but it's always on your mind. You're always thinking about the company. Everything at the company is your problem when you're a CEO. So it's thrilling. It's really exciting. It's also exhausting being a CEO. I think that's something I didn't appreciate when I was the second in command at CGen because I still had someone above me who was the buck was stopping with him. And that's been an eye opener for me. 
Yeah. And to segue now from that point, given the ups and downs in any biotech, given the inherent risk in what we do, and that coupled with the fact that you're a CEO, any advice that you would provide other entrepreneurs and CEOs on managing those ups and downs and what's worked particularly well for you? Yeah. I mean, the North Star for me is patience. I think having a really clear mission and you've got to believe for me, my leadership style is about being genuine. I've got to be myself and I have a particular style, but you also have to believe deeply in what you're doing. You can't fake it. So I think that your employees can tell it's less important what you say and more important what you do is my philosophy. So find something you really believe in, be passionate about it and hire great people. We've really tried at Chinook not to hire jerks. We've got a really strong rule that we want to work with people that are people we want to be with. And even if there's somebody who's really good at their job from a tactical point of view, we want to work with people we like. Yeah, hire great people and delegate to them. You can't be over too controlling in this business. There's no way you can understand all of the different areas in a biotech company. It's probably one of the most complex companies you could build. You've got doctors and lawyers and accountants and scientists of every shape and size. It's really a complex organism, and you really need to be able to delegate and empower people along the way. And on the point of delegation, how have you navigated the evolving role of a CEO going from 20 people to 100 people? And what have you found to be helpful in terms of calibration of making sure you're focusing on the right things as the company evolves. When I started at the company, it seemed like I had like 10 jobs, especially after we licensed Atrocentin because we had nobody in our development team. So a lot of what I was doing at that point was multiple jobs and a ton of recruiting and hiring. So, you know, and then fake capital raising. It was a difficult time in the markets. I guess what I would say is I was doing a lot of different jobs and we were really scrambling a lot because we had moved so quickly. These days, it's more about we've got a lot of people in the positions that we need. We've got a lot of great expertise. So it's more about communication, decision making, making sure people work well together. And then ultimately, as a CEO, what I focus on always is investor relations, financing. That's a big part of the job and strategy. I guess what I would say, and I didn't articulate that very well earlier, is like when you're an early stage CEO, it's about survival and scrambling and keeping the lights on and hiring as quickly as you can to fill these different positions. Now it's different at this stage of the company. It's more about making sure that everyone's working well together. You have a good strategy. You're well-financed. In some ways, it's a little more less frenetic, but it's gotten much more complex as an organization, and there's much more going on at any given time. So it's just different in many ways. And now pulling on this thread of yeah. asking you to reflect for the last time, if you were to think about your younger self and given all that you've seen and experienced during your career, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self? Yeah, I never really had a plan for my career. I've always kind of done what I thought would be interesting and challenging and I might be good at. And it's, for the most part, worked out. I wish I had taken more science courses in university, actually, you know, because I really didn't do very much of that. And I think having that grounding would have been great for the career that I ended up choosing. I didn't know at the time I was going to be a biotech CEO in any way, shape or form. But I wish I had done more of that. I've been running pretty hard my whole career. I've never really had much time off. I guess my kids have taken some time off after college and sort of had some more time to themselves to figure things out, travel. I wish I had taken more breaks in my career. 
actually, because, you know, I'm almost 55 now and I've been going pretty much nonstop the whole time, which has been great. I've built what I think is a fantastic career, but I wish I'd had a little more time to reflect over the course of my life. Great. Well, Eric, on that note, thank you for sharing your own personal journey with us the exciting work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Chinook and also educating us on kidney disease. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, Rahul. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.